You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Well, hello and welcome to TFM's local books and comics show for Star Trek. And I'm just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and so excited that he is with me again. The one, the only, Casey Pettit. How are you, Casey? I'm doing pretty good. Spent the weekend at the Washington State Fair and did the Puyallup and fat and stupid now, so... <laughs> Man, that's fantastic. That makes me it makes me miss the the Texas State Fair. I yes. loved going to the State Fair every year. Um all the fried foods like, you know, the the important ones like uh, you know, fried cookie dough and yeah. fried chocolate and stuff fried like that. Butter. So Fried exactly. Beer. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Wow, that sounds terrible. It, but, the beer is um, pretty terrible. I it, and what's funny is I remember I had fried butter, and uh, it basically just sound, tasted like a uber buttery croissant. Because huh. I mean, you know. Anyway, but um, before we dive in, just a huge thank you to everybody listening. We we love it. Um, we appreciate your support. Uh, and if you're not subscribed wherever you are listening to this, and that way you'll get all the episodes as soon as they drop. You can find us all over social media. Uh, we're at Trek FM on Twitter on, as well as on Instagram. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. The entire network is there, of course. Uh, and you can also find a listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference and talk to listeners from all over the world. Uh, you can also check out our website at trek.fm, see what we've got going on all of our podcasts and then of course uh you can support us like casey pettit or greg rosier over on patreon making sure that all of these shows keep coming to us each and every week we definitely need your help so do that um and again that's patreon at patreon.com slash track fm so Casey, we have uh, a couple of uh, comics that basically go together because they're in the Day of Blood series. We had Star Trek Eleven and Defiant Number Seven come out, and really, they there's no there's no difference in the sense that like they're both telling uh, the same story. Um, and goodness, I felt like it was so fun to be able to read them back to back. And there's so much that kind of happens uh, in this uh, these two issues. That And there's some things that, like, because we're leading towards the end of this series, we only have one more issue left. Uh, this wraps up, I believe, in uh, Star Trek Twelve. I – this is just everything I've come to expect from this series so far. And it's not that I'm, like um, – I'm not not wanting to talk about it, but I just feel like people should read them because if you're already liking the series, this just continue it continues it in a really cool way yeah they're doing a great job with you know we have defiant which is a spin-off of the star trek ongoing 
series and then they've kind of brought them back together for this kind of one big cohesive story so they kind of split them apart for the same reason that they're bringing them back together which is pretty cool and and getting to see some of these characters interact in these stories like tom and Bellana or um even scotty and uh scotty and spock and and some of the other people in here it's it's really cool to see them interact you know when we're seeing um characters from both sides um but yeah i kind of mentioned before we started recording here like uh you know it's it's kind of weird that we got star trek and star trek defiant on on the titles because this is really a very a very good just combination of both there's you know it's a good reason to uh to get into both series and yeah there's this is kind of what we would want from a crossover, I think, in different comic series. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. definitely worth picking up. And, you know, we're headed to a pretty explosive conclusion, I think, uh, next time. Absolutely. Um, no, I, I love the way that you said that, where this is exactly what you would expect from a crossover series, where you can't really tell the difference between the comics. I think the only difference here is really the artists working. Uh, and I, I love both of the art that's mm-hmm. going on in Star Trek series, as well as the Defiant series. I think they've been doing a great job. Um, I think that uh, this has been so far just a ridiculously exciting series. And as I've mentioned many times, I love the over the top nature of it. I, I think that um, because it knows exactly what it is and it basically is the comic book version of the Star Trek universe and they're not afraid to basically do all that that entails. Like I love that. And, and so I've, you know, I, I think in some ways this might be one of the smartest ways to do Star Trek comics because it truly creates, you know, almost like the Litverse did with with the Litverse. You know, this is like the comic verse, and I think that's great. Um, and I, I really do hope that this will be able to continue for a long time to come because I'm personally enjoying it very much. Um so we, we do have a new series that just started, Casey. Um, it is a brand new Strange New World series called The Scorpius Run. And I'm really fascinated to see what you think of this first issue. I, I kind of I like what you said in the previous things. Like this is the comic book verse, the comic verse. This is kind of it's starting off kind of a goofy story. They get trapped and they need to join this race in order to get out of this uh, area of space. And it's a little over the top. It's kind of, I don't know, comic booky. And so, I mean, just the first issue, it's, you know, just getting the story started. But as, as they have with some of the other strange new worlds comics that we've seen already, um, you know, they're getting the likenesses down for the characters, um, the, you know, the look of the ship and, and just the artwork in general is pretty good. But, um, yeah, it's just kind of like the stuff we got in this one was kind of a goofy, goofy little intro to this thing. And I'm I mean, I am looking forward to seeing where it goes because I think it could be fun. Yeah. You know, something about this I think is interesting um, is that not long ago uh, or I guess maybe years ago at this point, honestly, uh, they did a Star Wars series like this where uh, Han Solo was a part of a race 
similar to this, it felt like. Mm. So in some ways, uh, this did feel more like a Star Wars type of storyline than a Star Trek type of storyline, even just, um, you know, what they run into, which is this, I don't know, weird decapitated head alien that's a control of of this you know place in the middle of uh the scorpius uh sector of space and, and which you know um I, I just the the whole thing was was a little bit off in that sense but it also did feel like something uh pretty outlandish that strange new worlds would go for and so yeah i mean I, I'm here for it. You know, I, I enjoyed the artwork in it and I'm interested to see where it goes. I will say that this is probably a series that didn't quite catch my attention uh, or uh, keep my interest throughout the whole thing. It just kind of, I don't know. Um, in some ways, it felt because the way that they've been doing this. The, the Strange New Worlds comics where you really want it to feel like an episode of Strange mm-hmm. New Worlds. This one felt like it was like a, a just like almost like a page too far for even Strange New Worlds into that comic bookiness. Whereas, you know, obviously we just talked about Star Trek and Defiant have set themselves up as being as comic book as you can get. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe maybe people think I'm a hypocrite in that, but it, it just that's where I kind of fell down. It just didn't feel like it it worked as well as maybe they wanted it to for me personally. Yeah, I can definitely see that. This strange new worlds like the show has def- definitely stretched the bounds of um, what we've seen in Star Trek before on TV, and it does kind of start. It's starting to feel like they're doing that to some extent with the comics and um you know whereas the day of blood series and, and even just the ongoing star trek and defiant series are more i don't want to necessarily say serious in nature but they kind of are they're kind of darker stories and everything and it seems like they're really kind of trying to to do a total 180 here with the strange new world series by doing something that's a little bit more fun and colorful and upbeat, I guess. And so, I don't know. I can see the connection to Star Wars, so I haven't, um, you know, read any of those stories. But you know, even just some of the aliens in this one, like yes. the guy with the tusks, even <laughs> like looks like they're pulled yeah. straight out of Star Wars. <laughs> I was like, wait, Gamorrean guards yeah. are, uh, you know, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. But no, I. I totally understand. I, I think you're right in, in some ways. There does seem to be a lot of intentionality here with this series so that it is differentiating itself for what they're doing in the other two series right now. And, and I don't have a problem with that at all. I think, you know, in some ways you don't want every single comic that you're putting out to feel so similar. And, of course, I think Strange New Worlds in general tends to feel more kind of light and airy anyway mm-hmm. as a show uh you know it's it's definitely not as heavy as is something um on, on the on the usual side as you know something like Picard had been or you know I guess even Discovery in some ways like that right so 
Yeah, I, but all in all, I mean, I think it's a decent first issue, and I think all of the, the issues here uh, were good, and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the Day of Blood series wrapped up, and, you know, kind of where they decide to go with the Defiant and the the Star Trek series after that, um, you know, what, what type of stories they have in mind, uh, because it's felt almost like the entire run of those two series in the first place has been building up to this day of blood. Mm -hmm. And so where are we going to go from there? Um, It will be really interesting, but yeah, I mean, it Star Trek has been doing great comics recently. And I think, you know, honestly, these three, you can't go wrong with picking up any of them. Well, Casey, uh, it's, uh, we're going to be covering uh, cast no shadow, uh, James Swallow's book that follows up on many of the events of Star Trek, the undiscovered country. So, I don't know, maybe we should go see if we can find our shadows. Casey, I remember when this book came out, and I knew I read it, and yet I really did not remember much of what happened in the story, which I'm always very excited when I'm rereading one of these Star Trek books. And one of the things for me that I think makes this book so worthwhile as a fan is the way that we're unpacking Valeris as a character um, because obviously we don't get to really know her or what makes her tick in the undiscovered country because we just don't have the time for that. And that's where a book like this can really come into play. And uh, you know, I love James Wallow's work. It has nothing to do with the fact that he put my name in a book once. Uh, I think he's <laughs> been an incredible writer for uh, Star Trek fiction and here, I think he does a really great, I mean, he does the same type of job that I feel like Christopher L. Bennett does many times where he's pulling a lot of different things together. And I mean, he really brought this character to life uh, in a way that I completely forgot had happened with all the Star Trek books I've read over the years. And, and now couldn't be more thankful that I've gotten reacquainted with this book so that I can get to know this character again. Yeah, this is, you know, The Undiscovered Country is, I mean, in my opinion, probably my favorite of the original series movies. And so to have a follow-up same, book to that. Same, same. Yeah. Um, it, it's just great having a follow-up book to that That's that's actually quite a few years later even i mean i think this takes place like seven years after valeris yes is um yeah it's seven years since she was put in prison so i mean it's it's been about seven to eight years since what happened you know at kittimer yeah and so we essentially have almost a different valeris here just because she's spent this time you know in prison and really getting to dive into her beliefs, I guess, to see what she was um, thinking at the time, thinking since. And I really liked the flashbacks and, and kind of kind of continuing to go further and further back in time in those flashbacks to see, I guess, who Valeris was. Because that was that's a story I'm really interested in, and I'm really glad that we got that too, because h- how does a Vulcan you know, get to that point. And we've seen Vulcans in like section 31 and stuff, but um, yeah, just super interesting character to dive into. And so I'm glad we got to do that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's really interesting, and like you mentioned, we go back in time with this character and successively continue to go further and farther back until we uh, are able to pinpoint the moment at which she is able to realize, okay, this is exactly where my hatred of Klingons came from and how she used um, her Vulcan logic to be able to rationalize that as saying, oh, they're just dangerous. So, you know, and the beauty of all this is, is something that, you know, can be said of Vulcans in general and just logic in general and what Spock was trying to teach her, which is, you know, logic is only the beginning of wisdom because you can logic your way into believing anything. And um, the danger of that um, when it is unchecked by anything else. Uh, and so I, I loved the fact that we went all the way back to her childhood to see the way in which a interaction with Klingons, um, with her family, who uh, her father was an ambassador, uh, you know, led to this um, kind of corrupting of her, her logic corrupted logic you know um her, her, and and that um you know what's interesting is that she has logical hate in her heart for klingons uh and she's never allowed herself to believe that until you know she's been working with this therapist who's been trying to dig into her life um and part of that you know obviously too has to to do with uh, the way in which she's dealing with the ramifications, obviously, of her forced mind melt with Spock and how she has to come to uh, grips with the fact that the choices that Spock made were because of the choices that she had made. And she finds herself in a position where she must repeat the same actions that Spock made uh, because of the choices of others. And to me, that was really, really fascinating because I think it makes it so much more nuanced. Um, you know, obviously uh, what uh, James is is doing here is is really allowing us to have the meditations on torture Mm -hmm. And, um, and the ways in which the choices of some people lead to the choices that other people have. And I just, I found that to be really fascinating because I felt like, and, and, and I wanted to ask you that it, it seemed as though she realized that Spock didn't have a choice that because of the choices that Valeris had made, Spock only had one choice because that Valeris comes to that same position um, and realizes she doesn't have any choice because of the other choices that people have made. And so the interconnected nature of choice uh, here was something that's really fascinating. And of course, all of this comes into as we've been unpacking this character and, and she's becoming willing to actually admit things about herself yeah she's definitely becoming more emotional or more in in touch i guess with her emotions as as the story unfolds but yeah i i really liked the parallel story that she had with the mind meld because 
especially as everything we know about mind melds throughout Star Trek and even through the Litverse and everything, you know, we we know that mind melds are such a personal, uh, such a personal touch. And I mean, from what we see in Star Trek Six, Spock's mind meld with her was tantamount to rape. I mean, it was for a specific purpose, but she, I think felt violated basically, you know, at, at the beginning right. of the story and when she's in pre- in prison. Um, and by the time we get to the end of the story, she's now grown to a place where, you know, like you said, the choices that she's made and the choices that others have made have led her to this place where she feels like she has no choice, but to do the same thing to someone else, um, someone else who is resisting the mind meld as well, or tr- well, trying to, cause he, he has a weak mind, so <laughs> he can't really resist, but, um, you know, just the, the amount that she's grown to have an understanding at least for the position that she had put Spock in at that time, um, you know, to almost, you know, lament her choices to the extent anyways that it put Spock in that position to do something like that because she doesn't like having to do it herself now. Right. Well, and and it's, it's interesting because the, there's a refrain in the book that there's always a choice. Yeah. One always has a choice. The question becomes, do you have more than one choice? Right? And... And so what's interesting here is that I think, you know, you see Valeris and Spock have both reached the same position when they're forced to do this because the choice of inaction and not doing the thing is more harmful than doing the thing um, to the greater amount of people. And, and of course, as we know, specifically for Vulcans, you know, the axiom, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Right. And that's I mean, it's the most utilitarian phrase on on the planet. Uh, And and yet that's what really drives them. Right. That's what they would consider the good. And so when that's your only choice, um, making that choice is what you have to do. And I think that's the interesting thing is to watch Valeris learn that. I, I think, you know, when we're unpacking her as a character, and what leads her to be a part of the conspiracy to try to assassinate Gorkin and to succeed in doing so. You know, I think I was also interested in the ways in which, as we unpack her, we can see places where, you know, Spock himself was blinded to to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not really, truly see her. And I think... Um, that's something that was really fascinating to me and almost feels like there could be a whole other book uh, in that sense um, of, you know, the it, because Valeris uh, feels like almost the Anakin Skywalker of the, the series, hmm. right? You know, where you have a renowned character bringing them up and sponsoring them and believing in them and not seeing in them the things that make them turn or maybe turning a blind eye to the make the things that make them do so. And to me, that was also another interesting thing about unpacking this character is you realize Spock missed a lot of things um, with Valeris as a character uh, and didn't necessarily truly see her or 
even begin to think of the ways in which the she would had been impacted by her previous experience. And so, uh, you know, as he says, he was blinded by her accomplishments as a Vulcan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, I, I found that to be incredibly fascinating. And I think, you know, it's another place where, you know, is James unfurled this character for us. Uh, it, it, it shone light on, you know, and it brings to light all these things. So now as you watch the undiscovered country, you have all of these things running through your mind. Yeah. And Spock, you know, in the movie, Spock admits that, that he missed things about her. He was blinded by, yeah, her accomplishments. He was blinded by the prospect of peace with the Klingons. And, um, you know, here we see her, you know, in her past or at some point in the book, um, she she kind of realizes or maybe she had realized long before that she was just kind of the follow on to Savic. She was just another protege that he could take on. And, um, you know, it's kind of a good way that we could see, too, that Spock was flawed. He just sees another up and coming Vulcan and you know, even with all the things that we know about Spock and his childhood and his upbringing, I mean, he's not perfect either. And for him to just kind of um, assume, I guess, that, you know, Valeris is this star student that's going to, you know, uh, succeed him on the Enterprise as the logical Vulcan bridge officer. I mean, from the things that we'd seen in her past, I mean, obviously she's a Vulcan, she's good at hiding her emotions and everything, but um and I and I would guess too, I guess she's even good about hiding some of those things from herself, because I don't I I'd be curious. I mean, she knew how she felt about the Klingons, but I'd be curious by the time the events of the Undiscovered Country happened, if she was really totally aware of where this was all going, you know, and where it could take her life. You know, it's kind of a Maquis section 31, you know, came up in the book, but kind of mentality of if they're doing the, the unlawful good, I guess, you know, and, um, seems like Spock should have seen that, but, you know, he was, he's looking for a protege, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's really interesting, you know, just all of this talk with Spock and his relationship with Valeris, you know, and he's on the cover, of course, but he has such a small role in the book. Um, you know, his his role is very minor, and, and his real role here is to, you know, help uh, get Valeris out of prison uh, with the, you know, uh, with Starfleet intelligence so that she can go on this mission uh, on the Excelsior and with Elias Vaughn. And so... Um, and it's it's so interesting because again, you know, as we're unpacking this character, we're, I think you know we're we're unpacking the ways in which both of them, in the end, uh, come to the realization of the ways they talked past each other, the mm. ways that they missed each other, um, the ways that they let each other down. Uh, and there does seem by the end of this specifically, you know, for Valeris, it does feel like there's forgiveness towards Spock. 
Uh, and it's interesting because I don't really think that Spock gets that closure, um, at least through the book. Um, and because he doesn't really get to know all the experiences that the Valeris ended up having, um, and they never meet again, mm -hmm. at least that we see. Um, and so I think that's a really interesting thing because I don't know. I mean, I think it, it will be one of those things that Spock from this point on would always carry around in him um, that would guide his future, which is to to never take anything for granted, uh, never take anyone for granted. And in making sure that, you know, he does not ever assume now about anyone, regardless of who they are. Um, because he's seen, um, the damage that can be caused because of that, you know, it, you can trust, but you have to verify. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and to me, that was really interesting. And it almost makes me wish that there were like a follow-up short story, um, with Spock's, you know, side of this and being able to, you know, again, have some closure with that relationship with Valeris and where it you know, where we leave it at the very end of the book, there's that possibility. Um, but Valeris doesn't take it because, you know, she does not go to see Spock. Um, when it's, it's, uh, you know, she's starting another life with another name mm -hmm. and she goes to do something else instead of going to see Spock, who's on, I think, uh, a, a different, I, she's on a different planet at that point. Yeah. It's not Romulus yet, but it's, it's, you know, so well, yeah, I, I just found that to be real interesting. Yeah. And I, I do wish that there was more Spock in this book. I mean, yeah, he's on the cover because he's going to sell books um, more than Valeris would because we know who she is, but the average Star Trek fan may not. But it's uh, and, and even just in some of the flashbacks to see how they interacted um, when she was kind of coming up through the Academy, we got a glimpse of that of her at that time and you know with the paper that she wrote that Cartwright liked so much where she was kind of admonishing what Starfleet does and how they behave and act and everything and basically saying like we need to um be more aggressive with the Klingons basically and he kind of you know gives her the wink and a nod and says yeah write a different like I like this paper I'm gonna keep it Write a different one for your class, though. And I just kind of wonder, where was Spock in that? Did they have discussions about this? I'd like to see kind of a one-on-one -on -one with her and Spock kind of talking about these things and him kind of almost blowing it off like, you know, she's just a somebody young and trying to logic her way, you know, through the galaxy. Um, and then kind of lending some credence to some of the discussions they had in Star Trek six, where he's like, you know, yes. I was blinded by, you know, your accomplishments and everything. And yeah. so that we could see like that they've actually, like the signs were there. Um, and yeah, even a follow on short story, just, you know, Ina Vela, something like that would be good. I think is a, a little bit. And again, yeah, like your idea of even just like an epilogue seeing, him sometime in the future just thinking back on Valeris, wondering where she's at, how she's doing, you know, something just to get a little closure there too. Yeah. No, I I couldn't agree with you more. Um and 
it's it's one of those things where I, I, in some ways I almost feel that a book that's leaving you wanting more in that way is a good thing. Uh, and it's it's not that it felt like it was necessarily a, a detriment to this book. It just felt like there was so much more that could have been explored, you know, and part of that, it's, you know, you could have made this uh, you could have you know, almost had a whole other book mm-hmm. or so much longer book um, to really dive into that. But, you know, on top of, you know, unpacking Valeris and, and seeing the role that Spock had, you know, we really unpacked the conspiracy of the undiscovered country because there are a lot of elements that never really get explained, of course, in the movie, uh, the Romulan element. And then, of course, we learned here that Creos the planet we met in one of my favorite Star Trek episodes from you know, Enterprise that a lot of people hate, uh, you know, with uh, Padma Lansky uh, and Trip, um, you know, and where we meet the, the 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 woman who will be the first monarch, um, the connections that Cartwright has with Valeris. I mean, I thought this, again, this is one of those places where we really – have a lot of great connections made. And I think what we do is we flesh out what was on screen in a way that feels so perfect. Like it just, everything I thought fit so well. And I, I really appreciate just to start with specifically learning that Nunclus was a Tal Shiar agent and that they've been working behind the scenes to fuel all of these things made so much sense then to understand that this Romulan, uh, you know, ambassador and him being involved in this, uh, you know, of course he was a Tal Shiar agent. Yeah, he's he's one too that I kind of wish we had a little bit more of. I mean, you don't want to have too much Tal Shiar, you know, this secretive stuff going on, but... um, you know, when that was brought up, it actually, I don't even think they named him until about halfway through the book. We just got these little snippets of, of him. And, um, and then, you know, once they named him and said, oh, he was there at, at Kittimer, I was like, oh, right. And it would make so much sense that the Tel Shiar would be involved. Um, so I love, you know, that that's kind of tied in there. Um, you know, the Creosians were an interesting race to bring in here for this just because, you know, we've seen them in that Enterprise episode. They were also um, in The Next Generation and The Perfect Mate um, with uh, Jean Grey from X-Men. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but otherwise, we haven't really gotten, you know, much of anything from them ever. So it was kind of an interesting race to bring in. Um, I kept picturing the trill in my head as they described the spots and the pigmentation, which right. I guess is fine because they look very similar, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm glad that we didn't just go back to one of the old standbys and, you know, have the Cardassians involved when they shouldn't have been or something like that. I'm glad we got kind of an unexplored race to some extent you know one that we just really haven't seen or known very much um it just made for a lot of interesting characters that we could bring in especially ones that are under the thumb of the klingons i completely agree with you um here i think that this is one of the places where uh you know really building into the Creosians, having them be this and very much a uh, kind of a rogue element 
that you wouldn't necessarily expect, but then building into their story uh, the way in which the Klingons, you know, have annexed their planet and treated them horribly. You know, it's a story that the Klingons have repeated many a times. I thought that that made it really interesting. I thought it was great to to have them in this element, you know, because of their experiences with the Klingons. You can easily then connect them with somebody like Valeris and her experience with the Klingons. That, you know, you, you begin to understand why these factions come together, even... Even um, in the ways in which, because they are working towards, everybody kind of has their own desire of what the greater good is here, and and so how you can get such a, an unlikely alliance um, that, you know, like, why would they be allying with somebody like a General Chang? Well, mm-hmm. you know, you, you see why, and they even explain, you know, uh, why the Creosians, you know, somewhat agree to his terms because he promises to, you know, give them leniency once he is, you know, uh, running the empire. And, and, and then on top of all that, like you mentioned the idea of, of Cartwright. Well, we not only get the connection of him telling her to write another dissertation, um, but we also get the fact that it is the Ark Royal, which saved her family um, from this, you know, kind of Klingon tyrant who is trying to uh, extract from this negotiation his desired outcome by force. And so I, I just, I loved the way in which all of these things connected to help explain in fullness how this conspiracy came to be. And how how all of these different factions work together. And I thought James just did, you know, this is just kind of one of those masterful jobs that we've come to expect from so many of these great Star Trek authors where they accentuate everything you saw on screen. So now when you rewatch the film, you're thinking about all of those elements and they're enhancing everything that happened in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I, I liked that Cartwright was essentially the one that saved her as a child. And, um, you know, to further your Valeris as Anakin analogy, I mean, Cartwright would almost be Palpatine here in that younger stage when, you know, at the end of uh, The Phantom Menace, when he's like, I'll be keeping my eye on you. And yes, I, yes. I almost expected Cartwright to say that to Valeris here because he's now witnessed and and that may not have been going through his mind at the time, but he clearly had some opinions about the Klingons even then. Um, but, you know, bring that forward in time, backward in our story, you know, in our flashbacks with the dissertation. I mean, right. he, whether she knew it or not, he knew of her from way back when and right. probably did keep his eye on her. Um, and, for all we know, could have been kind of grooming her through her upbringing and her um, her academy time a little bit more to her ways, you know, like, yes, it's, it's very possible that she could have, you know, whether th- from therapy or, you know, Vulcan meditation or something, come to expect what had happened when she was a child. But, you know, instead, she, in her own way, and I think with Cartwright's help has built up this kind of festering hatred for the Klingons herself mm-hmm. that I think yeah. is even 
so subconscious in some ways that even she doesn't realize how deep yeah. it goes for her. Yeah, I, I love that you bring that up because I think that that really goes to one of the biggest thematic elements of the book, which is this kind of idea of continuously fueling hate um, and the way that most hate is driven by fear, you know, uh, and so the whole Yoda phrase from bringing up the Phantom Menace, you know, when you continually build into that fear it stokes that hatred so that it just kind of continues on forever and it you know ruins everything in its path and i and i thought that this was great because you know there's that moment with kaj the klingon operative where she mentions to valeris like oh you just think all klingons are the same you know where you see the other side as a monolith instead of getting to know them personally we paint with these broad brushes which is another thing that really helps fuel the hate that we have uh for one another and and the fear that we have because of each other and so i thought that that was really really interesting because you see that play out in all of these different ways with all of these different characters involved in this conspiracy you know it's the inability to do Basically, the same the thing that Kirk is able to do, which is to transcend his hate, to let it go, um, to be able to finally see um, Klingons as something other than those that just murdered his son and are murderous killers. Right? Um, nobody else that that's a part of this conspiracy is is able to do that um, until we see kind of Valeris being able to come to grips with that. Um, after all of this time of contemplation. And, and I just thought that that's such a sadly poignant thematic element because it seems m as though this might be uh, even more pronounced in the world where we're reading this book today than it was when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, that kind of theme throughout this book was, yeah, probably the, one of the best things about it, just seeing, well, seeing the hate in Valeris, but even just in Kaj and, uh, uh, what was his name? Rain, I think. And that, you know, a lot of these other characters that were kind of battling against each other and, um, you know, for their own purposes, for their own, uh, you know, some of them are fighting for their freedom, some are fighting for others' freedom, some are fighting for the betterment of the galaxy, whatever it is. But um, seeing these characters interact um, and the change in Valeris through the book, I don't think she necessarily has less hate by the end of the book, but I think she's now able to... Or, well, yeah, I don't think she necessarily has less hate at the end of the book as she does at the beginning, but she has a better understanding. Um, and, you know, I, I like that you brought up the um, discussion she had with Kaj and, you know, painting everybody with a broad brush. I mean, we even do that in Star Trek. You know, we have these monolithic cultures that, you know, all Klingons are warriors or, you know, whatever. Um, and at least by the end of the book, Valeris's eyes are open and even Kaj's eyes are kind of opened. And yes, yes. Especially once Valeris tells her, my name isn't convict, you know, like Kaj mm -hmm. is still working through that, but she does have yes some 
respect or understanding, I guess, maybe of Valeris to the point where they can work together. She can save Valeris's life. She can um, put aside that hate when they realize they're working towards the same goals and that Valeris is actually trying to help them. Um, just a really good kind of narrative on how things could be if we kind of were able to stop and listen to each other and talk, you know, the whole, let's try diplomacy first, you know, rather than, um, you know, fighting first. Um, I think it's such a powerful message. And and like you said, especially for the world that we live in today. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you, I think, I think Valeris has, less hate but i think it's still like you were kind of mentioning with her and kaj it's a work in progress right because and and the same thing i I think we saw that beautifully in in star trek 6 with kirk right it's a work in progress um to let those things go it it takes i think an intense amount of um self-introspection and and thought to to be able to be dismantle those mental uh, like pieces that we've put in place, you know, that allow us to, uh, you know, kind of hurdle over the problematic views that we might have. Mm. Um, and so as you begin to dismantle that wall, um, you know, and you take away those different bricks in the wall, you're um, – creating new, you know, almost pathways in your brain for, to make other connections, you know, and, but that's, that's work. It takes work to do that. And so I think that that's something that, you know, we do see in the book, you know, I forgot that Elias Vaughn was in this book. And what I, I love is that, you know, of course, this is a character that we will come to know, especially throughout the Deep Space Nine relaunch and beyond, and will be a huge part of that. But to see his first mission for Starfleet intelligence from out behind the desk was phenomenal. And I think my absolute favorite part was when he referenced the hunt for October. Basically, he's uh, Jack Ryan, where he's like, next time, Jack, just write a GD memo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think he even referred to himself as an analyst at one point. Yes, he did. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's yeah, he's a a great character. One we've seen, we know by Deep Space Nine. I think he's you know over a hundred years old. Uh, he's you know kind of long lived, and so we've seen him in other books that take place between you know the undiscovered country and well the Deep Space Nine time frame, I guess. But um, he was a fun character to bring in, especially as a younger man new in his field but also uh headstrong but he's earned it i guess or well he's earning it you know he he's he's smart he's uh observant and just a, a good character to introduce at this time i think i did like too that at the beginning he is so sure of himself takes his findings to his superiors they say no and to go back to his desk basically and he's so he's got so much conviction that he takes it takes his findings directly to sulu and to commander miller who he ends up working with Uh, but i liked 
at the end of the book, it's it's just very quick, but it it addresses that he was um dressed down basically for that. Like he he had a you know something going into his record from the person that uh, he did an end run around and for insubordination and rightly so, but it also just said that it's past. It's kind of a blip on the radar of his life and he's on to other things now. Uh, I just like that. They kind of tied that beginning and uh, the beginning and ending of the story for him together. But rather than just saying, Oh yeah, he went back to work for that guy and everything was fine because he was right. It, you know, he's still, Still broke the rules, but I think that's also kind of the Vaughn that we know in the future, too. So it's just fun seeing him here, somebody that was introduced in the DS9 relaunch and then get to use him elsewhere. And I'm glad, t- to be honest, that it wasn't Dax. <laughs> you know, we get Dax everywhere. It's nice getting somebody else from time to time. Yeah, I thought that that was fantastic. Um, it, he is a great character, and I think, you know, James did such a great job by basically making his story the Jack Ryan story from The Hunt for October, where it's a man who is great at his job, has incredible instincts, and now has to learn how to think on his feet in the field, which is a whole different animal. But then he finds out that he can do, you know, to push him to the limit and beyond. And I really liked that. I loved that part of this story. And like you mentioned, I mean, he's just a great character. And I also kind of wish almost that, you know, we had maybe been able to get some sort of continuation of his story, uh, you know, through his growth in this time period and then beyond, because Mm. I do find him to be such an interesting character. And of course, he touches on all of these other characters that we know uh, because he's lived through this kind of intermediate part of history. Um, and then, you know, of course, in, into everything we know for the 24th century. So I I thought his inclusion here was fantastic. And, you know, I just really enjoyed it. Um, I, I have one last question for you. Um, there are references in here, of course, to Section 31 and to control. Um, but the one thing about the book that I will say is that I never felt like those fully felt connected and so uh, tell me, did I miss something? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, it it was brought up from time to time. And I think a lot of us have kind of connected some dots between Cartwright and Valeris and Section 31 just on our own. Um, the way it was brought up in the book, it was mentioned at some point that it's kind of this it almost made it sound like it's the worst kept secret of Starfleet is section 31, but this secret society that's out there. And um, I, I didn't mind the mentions of it so much just to kind of leave it hanging out there. Like, was this section 31 or was this more uh, this rogue element within Starfleet that's just kind of, well, not even just Starfleet, but a handful of people banding together for one goal. Right. Um, so I, I, I didn't mind a little bit of mystery there. Some of the references to control though, were almost a little too much without connecting it to anything else. Cause it was like control was giving instructions. Control was involved somehow, but then it's, 
it's almost ripe for a follow-up if, you know, we're going to have a true Section 31 and control connection to this particular story. Yeah. No, I agree with you. It just seemed as though it was one of those things where uh, it felt a little too inside baseball Mm. uh, for the lit verse because we know what control is, right? In the end, it's the thing that's behind Section 31, Mm -hmm. um, and we'll figure that out all the way when we get to David Mack's book, Control, that we've, you know, discussed with him here. Um. So, yeah, I just I found I found it to be one of those things where if if you hadn't been up on the lit verse, you know, you would have just kind of found that, I think, very strange because there's no follow up to it in the book. Uh, and so therefore. Yeah, I it it's one of those things almost like. Yeah, I, I think that just saying it's it's basically it's the one thing that I think James maybe should have like edited out. Mm. Or maybe found a way to then make the connection for people who maybe this is their first Star Trek book to pick up. You know, um, I do feel like that needs to be something that uh, that that needed to be something that was just a little bit clear in the yeah. book. Other than that, though, I, you know, I think we've had nothing but praise for this book. So I cannot wait to see what you are going to rate Cast No Shadow. I am going to rate this four and a half mind melds. Um, I I think that um, having Spock on the cover really kind of threw me for a loop when we didn't see or hear from him anymore. And got a little bit of Sulu in there, but I did find myself wanting some other original series characters in there. Um, not to outshine Valeris or anything. I don't, I don't want it to become Spock's story or, um, or Kirk or, you know, I guess he's dead by this point or in the Nexus, but I, I don't know. I just, I found myself wanting some more of that, but also even just some more, like we talked about flashbacks of, with her and Spock and some of the connection there. So, um, but yeah, overall, very powerful story, a great follow up to, you know, my favorite original series movie. So yeah, pretty good four and a half on that one. I, um, I went ahead and just, uh, I, cause I thought about four and a half and I was like, well, Goodreads doesn't let you do that. So yeah. I just gave it a five. Uh, it's five out of five shadows, um, that I could see, um, <laughs> because I was not a trader. And, uh, I, I thought that this was just such a great book. I thought, James did a phenomenal job, like you mentioned, uh, with The Undiscovered Country. This is my favorite Star Trek film. And so the way in which he added to my enjoyment of that film, I think it absolutely leads me to to giving this a great rating. Um, but I think part of that is just it's a great book, you know, especially if you're a Star Trek fan. Um, I think this is really a, a fantastic book. And it was it was so refreshing to read this after all of the books that we've been reading recently where we've just been so disappointed. And uh, this was phenomenal. So, yeah, all in all, this this was the type of book that, uh, you know, good tie-in fiction should be looking to itself to want to be. And a good standalone story. I mean, it's a follow-on, but yes. a standalone, not part of a trilogy, not part of this huge crossover, but sits on its own. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like I want to go watch Star Trek 6 again now and uh 
you know, see what I've missed in the past. I do too. I, I was thinking <laughs> about that as I was finishing the book this weekend. I was like, man, I just want to watch the undiscovered country now. And so, no, I, I love that though. And, and again, that's the kind of thing where when, when a, when a Star Trek book can add to your enjoyment of an episode or a film, uh, to me, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so love it. Absolutely love it. But uh, Casey, you know, if uh, people wanted to catch up with you and, you know, see what else you've got going on these days, where would they find you? You could find me at Knitting Trekkie pretty much uh, anywhere. I'm at Goodreads, Letterboxd, Instagram, and Twitter, or X, or whatever that's called now. Uh, And you can also find me on Facebook in the Babel Conference, poking around uh, posts in there. You could find me all over social media under the name MattRushing02. Uh, You can also find me here on the network outside of Literary Treks in the 602 Club, talking about all of the franchises we love outside of Star Trek. You can also find me doing the Orb, Warp 5, Saddle Up, and the Artificial Tango. Over on the Nerd Party Network, you'll find me with a completed show called Owlpost with Drea Kaufman talking about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series. And then I'm doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills talking about Star Wars each and every week. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.